Well, friends, we're continuing a series of messages from the book of Esther. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter 8. Esther chapter 8. Looking at that entire chapter this evening, Esther chapter 8. Page 713 in your Bibles. Esther chapter 8. If you recall what just happened before, the um, evil Haman has been impaled on a gallows 75 feet high. We read at Esther chapter 8, that same day King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. And then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, And she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces." For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, And seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the name in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once the royal secretaries were summoned. On the twenty third day of the third month, the month of Sivan, they wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, and nobles of the one hundred twenty seven provinces stretching from India to Cush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued 
in the citadel of Susa. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen, and the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow in a moment of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word. And we pray that once again tonight, it would penetrate into our hearts. That it would penetrate our hearts and our minds and show us your way. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved in Christ, Ken Miedema, the uber-talented and blind singer, songwriter, piano player, and tricycle rider, I might add. My grandma, step-grandma, lived right next to him. I believe it was in the Elger Park area. When he was a little boy, and she, along with every other mother on the block, nervously watched blind Ken ride his tricycle full speed down his driveway straight to the street and always stop just before he got to the street. Typical kid, blind or not, making every mother on the street worry. Perhaps it was way back then when Miedema thought about writing a song called Flying Upside Down. Who knows? The words of the chorus of that song go like this, turn it over, turn it round, raise the humble and free the bound, down is up and up is down, this world looks different to you when you're flying upside down. I couldn't help but think of that song when I read and studied Esther 8 this week, the whole world has turned upside down for the Jewish people. They're flying upside down. What was down is now up, and what was up is now down. The humble have been raised. The enslaved have been freed. Things are turning upside down. Here are some examples. The wealthy, powerful, second in command to the king, arch enemy of the Jews, Haman, has just been hanged, and all his massive wealth has been given to Queen Esther. Look at Mordecai. Mordecai the Jew, known for refusing to bow down to Haman, the enemy of the Jews. He is brought into the king's presence, given the king's signet ring, and given control over everything that Haman lost when he was hanged. Mordecai is being raised up in power. Things are turning upside down. Another example, the death sentence on the Jews that Haman got passed by King Xerxes. It's an irrevocable law, a law of the Medes and the Persians. On April 17, 474 B.C., kill every Jew in the kingdom. A holocaust, that edict cannot be revoked, but maybe something can be done to turn that law upside down. And what do you have through Esther's careful requests? The king gives Mordecai and Esther carte blanche to make any decree they need to make that will help the situation of the Jewish people. 
They couldn't nullify the first law, but they could neutralize it with a second one. The new law Esther and Mordecai crafted gave the Jews the right to protect themselves, to mount their own offensive against those who were their enemies. The Jews, on the same day that they were supposed to be exterminated, can now destroy those who were intent on destroying them. Everything is turning upside down. Everything is coming up roses for the Jewish people now. Another example, Haman, the enemy of the Jews, had sent couriers to make his destroy the Jews decree known in the empire. Back in a few chapters. Mordecai one-ups him. The new Jews defend yourselves decree is sent by couriers riding royal horses, racing out to the far reaches of the empire. Mordecai gets the royal horses to Pony Express his new edict. Things are turning upside down. One more example, Mordecai gets new clothes at the end of the chapter, royal garments, Persian blue and white, along with a purple robe and gold crown, a far cry from the sackcloth and ashes he wore earlier in lament. Now he's dressed for celebration with the Jewish people. They have heard the news. They have seen and heard the edict. They are rejoicing and celebrating in the streets. The text says, wherever this new edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebration. With the first decree in Esther chapter 4, there was only fasting, weeping, wailing, sackcloth, ashes for the Jewish people. Now, celebration. Things are topsy-turvy. The Jews are flying upside down. And to top it all off, get this. Many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. The Jews, ironically, are growing in power and in number. They're swarming like the Israelites did while in Egypt just before God lifted them out of slavery in Egypt. Here it is again. The Jews are swarming, gaining strength, and their enemies are losing strength and even joining them. Irony, humor all over the place in chapter 8. Everything is turning upside down. And though the book of Esther doesn't say it, can you guess who perhaps just might be behind it all, orchestrating it all out, lifting these people up, turning things upside down, raising the weak, reducing the strong. The book of Esther is a book that shows us that God is behind the scenes. He is behind what is seen. He is faithfully at work still in the lives of the Jewish people in the book of Esther. He is extending his care and his power and his outstretched arm once again into their lives. The book of Esther mysteriously reveals the God who faithfully provides for his people, reveals the God who faithfully turns the world upside down to prosper his people. The book of Esther reveals the Lord God Almighty, 
maker of heaven and earth, the one who saves his people from certain death, who lifts them up time and time again. That's who we see in the book of Esther. That's who is at work behind the scenes in the book of Esther. And that, beloved, that is the same God whom we see in Jesus Christ. He faithfully saved his people at the cross and resurrection. He faithfully worked to lift up his people, to save us from sin, to save us from death, to save us from hell, to turn our lives, though we never deserved it, turn our lives upside down with his grace and his salvation. And so the question today is, how do you respond to him? How do you respond to a God like that? In the last couple of weeks, the elders and I have heard a number of professions of faith. You've seen those names in the bulletin that we'll all hear as well in the, in the coming weeks as a congregation. Now, for those who are here tonight who have professed your faith, and maybe it was a long time ago, maybe it was recent, whenever it was, think about it. Think back. Do you remember it? I remember mine. In the time leading up to it and shortly after, it's a bit of a spiritual high. You walk with a little, a little extra bounce in your step. Your feet seem a couple inches off the ground. It's like you're having a mountaintop experience with Jesus. That is as it should be. That's a blessing for those professing their faith in Christ Jesus. But oftentimes that mountaintop experience is a temporary blessing. We don't always stay up like that spiritually, do we? And you know something else? There are times, in fact, in the Christian life when we can't even remember what the mountaintop experience was like. When for whatever reason, in whatever way, we are brought low. We are down spiritually. Our faith loses momentum. We slip back into the old sinful habits. We become discouraged. We are brought low. We even question and doubt our very union with Christ. Those are the times it sure is good and important to know that we have a God who still rescues his people, who is powerful enough to do it even when we are down and practically out. This Savior God, Jesus Christ, can still lift us up and out, turn things upside down for us. Ultimately, he will. And so again, the question. The question tonight, how do you respond to a God, a Savior, who turned your life upside down like that? Number one, lean on the Lord. We heard that in the prayer a little earlier. Lean on him with full weight. Lean on the Lord. Trust him. Look how he has been faithful all through history and all through our own lives. Now, the right side up thing to do is to lean on yourselves. Depend on yourselves. Self-dependence. Our culture says, well, there's really only one person you can depend on, yourself. Self-dependence. Self-reliance. But God turns that upside down and says, no, lean on the Lord. Trust in the Lord. 
with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. The life verse for little Rowan this morning. Lean on the Lord. When you're low spiritually, chances are you're not leaning on the Lord. You're leaning on yourself. I'm sure many of you know the, the footprints poem. It's been around forever, right? Person walking along on the beach with Jesus. Two sets of footprints. And during the hardest and darkest time of their life, only one set of footprints is there. And the woman, a little indignant, she says, Well, why did you leave me in the darkest times, Lord, when I needed you the most? And Jesus lovingly answers her, That's when I carried you. You see, we think that and, and do that. Just, well, just do it ourselves. Lean on ourselves. That's what we have to do. We listen to the world and we try to do that. But God says, lean on the Lord. Lean on me. I know it's an upside-down way of thinking and doing things, but I'm all about turning things topsy-turvy for the good of my people. Now, where do you see that in the text? Well, you don't. It's... It's suspiciously absent. But you know what? The more, the more you read this book, the book of Esther, the more the silence of God in the book becomes deafening silence, the more God's absence in the book becomes a panoramic view of God saving his people once again in mysterious yet obvious ways. It's so obviously God at work in the lives of his people. The silence and absence of any mention of God draws us irresistibly into his presence where he turns things upside down and he reminds us again, lean on the Lord. Number two. Lift up the lowly. Lift up the lowly. That's God's project here, isn't it? To lift up the lowly, his people who are lowly, who are enslaved in a manner of speaking, who are far from home, who are going to be oppressed and terrorized and annihilated. God's project is to lift up the lowly. Psalm 138 verse 6 says, Though the Lord is exalted on high, he looks kindly on the lowly. It's God's project. Again and again, in the word of God, we are called to take care of the lowly, the poor, the orphaned, the widowed. We are called to be generous givers for those who have nothing. The second response here is to join God in that project of his, lift up the lowly. The world says, I work hard for my money. They can work hard for theirs. The world says, you earned it. You spend it in any way you want. Spend it all on yourself. The world says, look the other way when the lowly come by. God says, wait a minute. Wait a minute. My project is to lift up the lowly. My project is not to glorify the already great ones. My project is to magnify the meek ones, to lift up the lowly. And that's something you can ask God to help you with every single day, isn't it? Because I'm sure every one of us runs into someone lowly on a routine basis. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's at school. Maybe it's at Meyer Family Fair. Someone that the world has brought down low. And as follower of, followers of Christ, 
We have the opportunity to lift them up, to encourage, to be gentle, to smile and greet them, to give them hope, to care about them, to be kind to them. Is there someone in your life right now who needs a follower of Christ to lift them up, to join God in his project of lifting up the lowly, raising up the humble, turning the world's way upside down. Now, I imagine soon, and you probably can too, the United States is going to be flooded, right? Flooded with Ukrainian refugees. How will we, as a church, lift up one or more of these families? We need to start imagining how, how we fit into God's enterprise of raising them up. But you can do that when you're at the grocery store too. How can you show kindness, speak kindness, smile kindness, greet with kindness into the life of one who has been shoved down in this world? What are you doing to lift up the lowly? Financially, what are you doing to lift up the lowly, the poor, the homeless, the marginalized? In your your relationships at church, what are you doing to lift up the lowly. With your fellow students at school, what are you doing to lift up the lowly? At work, what are you doing to lift up the lowly? Are you humbly flying upside down with God or are you proudly sitting right side up with the world? Are you lifting the lowly or are you adoring the attractive, glorifying the great, worshiping the wealthy, praising the popular? God's project demands you fly upside down, lift up the lowly. Number three, lead with your lips. You see what Esther did in the story? She spoke up for the things she most cared about, her people, the Jewish people. She got over her fear to bring it up to the great King Xerxes. She was passionate about her people. She did not let that passion burn out. She fanned its flames. She spoke up. She led with her lips. Think about that. Most people, I think, simply remain quiet. In witnessing to a neighbor, we remain quiet. In addressing right and wrong, we remain quiet. In getting involved in something we are passionate about, we we remain quiet. In getting something started at church, we remain quiet. In speaking up for injustice, we remain quiet. How many times has living in a right-side-up world that often is simply a world filled with fear, fear of speaking up, fear of getting started, fear of interfering, fear of offending, fear of failing, how many times do we wish we could lead with our lips? Do we wish that the things we feel passionate about, we could speak up about? God says, when you walk with me, you fly upside down. I will drive out the fear. I will give you the strength. I will empower you. I will give you the words to say, lead with your lips. Be passionate about ministry at Faith Community Church. Be passionate about the lost. Be passionate about mission work around the world. Lead with your lips. Fear shuts down godly passion. Fear makes us, makes us afraid to speak up. God says, fly upside down with me. Speak the truth 
in love. You know, all you hear about these days is that Washington is gridlocked and there can hardly ever be any civil debate anymore. But we're the church. We can speak up, for we speak up in love. What are you passionate about that is part of God's project in this world to lift up the lowly? Is there something you want to do? Lead with your lips. Speak up for God's project on behalf of others. We need people to do that, to lead the way. Don't be afraid, even when criticized for it. Don't be afraid. Be courageous in the strength of Christ. Lead with your lips. And number four, let your heart laugh. You see all that celebrating in the text, the joy? Let your heart laugh. That's the sound of joy. The right-side-up way to live in this world, sadly, is with a large measure of cynicism and joylessness. But we are to respond with joy. We take the upside-down approach. Fly upside down. God has put joy in the hearts of believers. Others need to see it. Others need to see a smile. Others need to hear a warm greeting. In a joyless world, a simple greeting, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, actually sometimes flusters people at first, but then in a common grace sort of way puts a jolt of joy, even if for a moment, in their hearts. Let your heart laugh. Think about it. You've been graced, graced by God. God has saved you by his grace. There's a joy in that. Your sins are forgiven. There's joy in that. Your death is an entrance into life eternal fellowship with Christ. There's deep joy in that. You know, I do, I do a lot of thinking when I mow the lawn. That season is coming again fast and furiously, right? That's a great time to think when you're mowing the lawn. And sometimes I think of all the stuff I have to do or the stuff I've messed up. But sometimes, and I wish it were more, I think about, think about what God has done for me. How my sin is paid for. How my eternal home is being prepared. And you know what I do? I let out a laugh straight from the gut, from the depths of my heart, mowing that lawn. A laugh that joyfully shouts, Look what my God has done. Look what he's doing. And look what he's going to do someday. The late uh, Chuck Colson said that a good friend of his, Malcolm Muggeridge, taught him even to laugh at the misery of the world. Taught him to laugh at the folly and the foolishness human beings produce in this world. Even that needs to be laughed at, not to show that we approve, of course, but to show that we know that misery, misery is one day going to be all but a distant memory. I can laugh at that. I can laugh at that. The Bible paints the picture of Jesus being crucified and the soldiers mocking him, laughing at him. And I can imagine that Satan and his hosts were gleeful that day, joining in with those who laughed. Well, things got turned upside down at the cross, and the ones laughing became the ones laughed at. Colossians 2.15 says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, 
Christ made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. My friends, I can laugh at that. You can laugh at that. We can laugh at the awfulness of sin because, quite frankly, my future and yours are going to be free from that sin. So laugh with joy in the grace of God. Laugh with joy at the misery of sin defeated and soon to be eliminated forever. Laugh even in the face of death, for eternal life awaits. And you know what else? You can laugh when you hear talk and the fears about World War III. We keep hearing about it because the one enthroned in heaven laughs about the plans of kings and prime ministers and presidents and dictators, and you can laugh with expectancy at what God is ultimately going to do about viruses too tiny to see. You can laugh with joy because we know how it is all going to end up in the end. God turning everything upside down in a world filled with so much fear and destruction and hatred and violence that has us so scared so worried we can still laugh with the joy of the lord the joy of the lord that's our strength let your heart laugh in that joy remember that song the joy of the lord is my strength it comes from Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. The joy of the Lord is your strength. I want you to listen for a moment to a minute-long version of that song. It's played on the organ, and when I hear it, I smile, and I sing along. And by the end of it, I'm letting my heart laugh in the joy of the Lord. And the lady responsible for this particular arrangement of this song would never want her name to be mentioned. She wouldn't want that kind of recognition. So let's just call her, well, I call her Mom. Let's listen. that song? Let's sing it. Ready? The joy of the Lord is my strength. 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 Let us pray. Father in heaven, as we lean on the Lord, give us strength to lift up the lowly, to lead with our lips filled with the good news as we minister in the name of Jesus and so fill us with Christ that we let our hearts 
laugh with his joy. For Jesus' sake, amen.